Let's just bow our hearts, shall we, as we come before God's word together. Well, Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is living and powerful. And Father, that it divides between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. Lord, this morning we want to just understand more of what you have in store for us, Lord, and to challenge us, Lord, that we will be living lives that are are worthy of the calling wherein we are called. Lord, we have such a, an incredible story to tell of the salvation that we've been given so freely. But Lord, we want to tell it not just with words, but with our lives. Lord, we want to worship you not just with our songs, but with the way that we conduct ourselves every moment of every day. And so this morning, Lord, we just pray that through this passage in Scripture that we study, that you would speak to us and just give us a greater and deeper love for Jesus. Lord, open our eyes, we pray. Take away any preconceived ideas or anything that is not of you this morning. And Lord, just help us to come humbly before your throne this morning now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are carrying on a journey through the book of Revelation. This passage probably is one of my favorite in all of Scripture. Um, and there's lots. And inevitably, whenever you teach through a portion of Scripture, it seems to be that that particular part is your favorite part because the Lord speaks to you through it. But through the years, this particular portion, chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, have just fascinated me and excited me. And hopefully I'll, by God's grace, try and share with you some of the things that the Lord has laid upon my heart and shown me over the years of, of reading through this and over this week of, of preparing for this morning. Um, I just want you to turn on your Bibles before we start to the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and turn to chapter 2. Because this is one of my little bugbears in Scripture, and it's a portion that is so frequently misquoted. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And verse 9 and 10. Now verse 9 is actually a quote from the book of Isaiah, chapter 64. And it says this, it says, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. And, And sadly, at that point, many people stopped. And there's been some worship songs written, and people have quoted this many times. And it's kind of, well, we don't know, we can't understand what God has prepared. And that's kind of where people leave it. But we need to follow on, because the next verse is so important. He says, but God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. The point is not that we can't know the things that God has prepared, but you won't understand it with a natural mind. You need to be spiritual to understand the things that God has prepared. And many people have read through the book of Revelation and been confused or left cold. But for somebody who is spiritual, somebody who has the Holy Spirit of God within them, you can't read through these things without being affected. And as we will see, God has revealed so much of what is awaiting us. So don't for a moment think that we can't know or we don't understand the things that God has prepared because we're told very clearly God has revealed these things to us through his Spirit. Now, if you remember back in the opening chapter of Revelation, uh, you see there verse 19, John is coming as a divine outline to the book. He's told to write the things that you have seen. Now, at this point, that's the vision that John has seen in chapter 1. Then he's told to write the things which are. Well, they were the churches which he was told to send these letters to, the letters that are actually written by Jesus to these seven churches. And then finally, the things which shall be hereafter. 
Now that word that's translated hereafter occurs a number of times, and we'll see that again in a moment. It's the Greek word metatauter, it means after these things. So John was told to write the things that will occur after the things which are, the things of the churches. Let's look a little bit at the structure of where we're going then, because we're going to look now at the things that shall be hereafter, after the times of the churches. See, the events that we're going to read about now that go from chapter 4 to the end of the book of Revelation make up that final division of the book as Jesus himself separates the, 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 the book up into these three segments. And there are prophetic glimpses of future events that John records for us. Now, we should be very grateful that it was John and not Paul that receives this vision on Patmos. Because Paul, earlier on, if you remember in the book of Corinthians, speaks of a time when he was caught up to the third heaven. And he says, you know what, it was just so amazing, I can't even tell you about it. It's like, thanks Paul, that's all we get. But fortunately it was John, and John does his best to try and explain the things he saw. He was seeing real things, he was trying to explain it, and he was using, to the best of his knowledge, the the, the things that he could uh, articulate to say, it's like this, or it's as that. And we see those words and phrases used continually throughout the book. In chapters 4 and 5 then, what we're going to see is a vision of the throne room of the universe. And don't think this is just some kind of um, dreamy type of thing. John is seeing a reality. John is seeing a place that we will all end up one day if we love Jesus Christ. Now we're going to find that thrones are mentioned 51 times in the New Testament, but of that, 39 of those mentions are in the book of Revelation, and actually 17 of those occur in chapters 4 and 5. These chapters really are chapters that deal with the throne. The throne of the universe. Now, after talking to the disciples about the events of the tribulation, this time of judgment that Jesus said is coming upon the world. Jesus made this really important point to them. He said in Luke 21, 36, pray that you be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus said, there are things that are coming to pass on the earth. He just explained them in detail in Luke chapter 21. Matthew 24 is a similar passage in Matthew's Gospel. And he says that those things are coming on the earth, but you have a way of escaping them. He says, pray that you be counted worthy. Well, of course, we know that in and of ourselves, we are not worthy. We don't deserve anything from God's hand. But through the blood of Christ, we become clothed in his righteousness. And so in that sense, we are accounted worthy, not by our effort, but by Christ's. Now, it's the fulfillment of this that we're going to look at in chapters 4 and 5, when the church will come to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus said that there's a way of escaping the judgment that's going to come, and that you can come and stand before the Son of Man. And that's exactly what we now find detailed in these two chapters. Now, just for the record, and we're going to look at these in the coming weeks, if the Lord tarries, the, the events that follow in chapters 6 through 19 are going to be the things that shall come to pass. So this is going to outline for us from chapter 6 onwards, really, the tribulation. Now we'll see as we get there, it's divided into two parts, two periods of three and a half years. And we'll look at that in detail as we get there. And it's from those things, though, that Jesus says he promises a way of escape for his own. Chapter 19 is going to conclude the tribulation, and we're going to see Jesus returning. That's the second coming of Jesus, and dealt with for us in chapter 19. And that's going to lead into a literal, I make that point, literal, 
millennial reign. That's a thousand year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Now, a lot of people will think we're strange for holding that view. They think that it's just kind of a fairy tale. Not so. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that these things will be fulfilled literally. And there are many within the church today that would deny that. They would say that it's just an allegorical thing. And if you remember, when we were looking back a few weeks ago at the history of the church and the way things have happened over time, the church was persecuted for the first 300 years. And then suddenly that persecution lifts and the church is effectively promoted to the state religion under Emperor Constantine. And it's not surprising that some of the sincere believers at that time, who didn't really fully go to scripture to see what scripture actually said, knew that there was something about a millennial reign. And they knew that it was going to follow a time of tribulation. And they just come out of a time of tribulation. So you can understand why some of them said, well, maybe that was the tribulation and this is now the millennium. At that time, many of them believed that there would be a thousand years of peace. Well, if you know anything about the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, they were nothing, nothing like a, a time of peace. And certainly a thousand years on, when we get to about 1300 AD, nothing significantly changes and we don't see any of the events that are recorded in the book of Revelation. And so that led many then to just allegorize the whole of this portion, saying that, well, maybe it just means that the kingdom is going to come on earth and this millennial reign is just an idea of that, that Jesus will have this, this reign on earth. And then, of course, because Jesus hadn't come back bodily, the suggestion was, well, maybe... Jesus is just indwelling the lives of believers, and that's the way that he's come back. And gradually scripture gets watered down and watered down and so on. And of course, the prevailing view today is this amillennial view. Most churches in this country will hold to that position. When you prefix a word with a, it means not. A muse means not to think. Effectively, musing is thinking. A muse is not to think. And we have a whole entertainment industry based on that today, trying to encourage us not to think. But a millennial is not millennial. There won't be a literal millennium. Millennium. And many churches, unfortunately, have fallen to that deception and that lie. Because it's not the truth of scripture. You know, every time we find prophecy in scripture, we find that it is interpreted literally. There was a prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. It was literally fulfilled. He was. You know, and every other prophecy you look at, you'll find it was literally fulfilled. It was prophesied that the children of Israel, or certainly the, the final uh, tribe, or the, the, the kingdom of uh, Judah, and the southern kingdom, were going to go and spend 70 years in captivity. It wasn't figurative, it wasn't allegorical, it was literal. At the end of 70 years to the day, that time of captivity ended and they returned to their own land. Every time you look at prophecy in scripture, you'll find that it's fulfilled literally. And there's no reason when we come to the book of Revelation that we should treat it any differently. Is it important? Absolutely. It's vitally important that we understand this. Because our whole view of scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, is going to be affected by our understanding of these things. As will the understanding of many of the prophecies to do with this time. So we need to understand that these are real events that are being recorded in Revelation. And generally speaking, we find it's a chronological picture that's unfolding. And there are a few exceptions, and we'll, we'll look at that as we go further on in the study. Finally then, chapters 20 to 22 of the book will take us from this millennial kingdom, where Christ will reign on earth, into this wonderful period where... This old will be done away with and all things really will become new. We read in Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4. 
And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, or the dwelling of God, is with man. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. The former things have passed away. What a wonderful scripture. I'm sure a scripture that we're familiar with. But this promise that at the end of that, that period of a thousand years, as this old earth and the heavens are done away with, and we find that there's a new heavens and a new earth, this statement is made. And then we get back to where we should have been right at the start, back in the Garden of Eden. God's walk with man will finally be resumed. But this time, it won't be based upon man's obedience. It will be based upon a sacrifice that was made on that wooden cross in Judea some 2,000 years ago. You see, by our efforts, we will stumble, we will fall, and God knew that. God had already made a plan before the foundation of the world that the blood of his son would have to be shed. You see, but God still wanted us to have free choice. And so God chose to go through the whole of this plan that's been unveiled through history. But ultimately, God will get back to a place where we will be in a better position than ever we could have imagined. We won't be just there as human beings that have been spared God's wrath, but we then will have the the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. You see, Adam in the garden had his own spirit, and so did Eve. When they rebelled against God, spiritually they died. But Jesus makes the point that when we are born again, we receive the Spirit of God. We're put in a much better position than Adam ever was. And that's where we will be for eternity. So let's jump into chapter 4. Now before we get into the text itself, I want to just read some scriptures. Because Jesus said in John 14, a very clear promise to the disciples. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Now they were troubled because they knew that Jesus was going to be going away. They didn't understand the details, but he made that very clear. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, that probably would have, in the Jewish mind, triggered a few things. Because it was very common that if a Jewish groom was to get married, they would go and prepare a place in their father's house. They would build an annex onto the side. They would prepare it so that they would then eventually take their bride back to that place. Well, that's exactly what Christ is doing. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What a promise. Jesus is saying he's going to prepare somewhere, but he's going to come back. He says, and he's going to come and take us to be in that place. What a wonderful promise. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. You see, we know that we're to lay up our treasure in heaven. There's so many portions of scripture that speak about heaven being a place where we will go and dwell. In Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10, we read of Abraham, by faith Abraham sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, in tents, literally, with Isaac and Jacob, and as with him of the same promise, for he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. See, Abraham realized that 
This world isn't home. This is just, as C.S. Lewis put it, a shadow land. And Abraham realized that he didn't really want to put down roots here because this isn't home for us. We have something far better. A place where a city that has these foundations whose builder and maker is God. Also in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, picking up verse 4, we read this. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow, notice, of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that, you, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. You see, the tabernacle and all the things we read about in the book of Exodus... And that all the things that they constructed and they moved around the wilderness with them was simply a shadow. It was a model of what existed in heaven. And Moses was given a glimpse, seemingly, of these things. And the things that Moses makes and constructs to go in the tabernacle were all just copies of what really exists in heaven. And they were designed to speak of those things. And ultimately, all of those things point to Jesus. I was just having a look at the internet during the week and um, I got quite frustrated a few times because some of the comments were just so ridiculous regarding heaven. But I found this comment by a lady who wrote for Newsweek and she said 81% of Americans and 51% of Brits say they believe in heaven. Apparently that's an increase of 10% since a decade ago. And of those, 71% say it's an actual place. You see, people want to believe that there's a heaven. They want to believe that there's something after this life. One uh, comment was talking about atheists and saying that actually of all the, the things that religious people believe, actually heaven is one of the things that atheists don't object to too much. I wonder why. But you know, there's a lot of people with a lot of misconceptions about heaven, and yet it's so much part of our thinking and part of our, our lives. You know, these phrases you'll be familiar with, people say, for heaven's sake... People say, heaven help us. Without thinking for a moment what they're actually saying, people speak about, heaven knows. Well, yes, heaven does know. And people speak of some sort of experience or even some food or whatever, and say, it was heavenly. You see, we have this kind of concept of heaven being such a wonderful place and something so good. People sometimes speak of somebody who's come to their aid or rescue or whatever as being heaven sent. Again, the idea that heaven is such a good place and anything that would come from heaven surely has got to be a blessing. People speak of couples when they get together of being a match made in heaven. People also speak of heaven forbid, implying some sort of standard that heaven has. Heaven's above, people say sometimes. People speak about moving heaven and earth. People speak about heaven on earth as if We could have some sort of utopia here in this world. People also speak of things either literally or figuratively having a real stench, stinking to high heaven and so on. Heaven is so much part of our vocabulary, but for most people it's really just an abstract thought they don't understand, they don't know about it. But you know, what about us as Christians? What do we know about heaven? What do we know about the place that we're going to? You know, most of you, if you've ever been away on a holiday, will probably done just a little bit of research about where you're going. Trying to find out, you know, maybe what the, the food's going to be like, or certainly understanding the accommodation and, and so on. Well, we're about to make the, the most important journey of all. You know, what do we know about heaven? C.S. Lewis, 
in the last battle wrote this. He said, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life. Though I never knew it till now. Come further up. Come further in. Billy Graham made the comment. He says, my home is in heaven. I'm just traveling through this world. Very much aligns with what Abraham had said. Paul the Apostle says this, but our homeland is in heaven where our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ is. And we are looking forward to his return from there. When he comes back, he will take these dying bodies of ours and change them into glorious bodies like his own. Using the same mighty power they will use to conquer all else everywhere. Paul, making it very clear that this is not our home. That's taken from the Living Bible. Just a paraphrase, but it kind of sums up really what Paul was saying. This isn't our home. And that Jesus is going to come back and take us to that place. I thought this comment was quite interesting. This was by Tozer. He said this, he says, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God, that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. That was quite a telling comment really, because if you find that worship is something that you find a bit tedious, well... Sit tight. Let's look at these verses because you're going to find that worship is an integral part of life in heaven. So let's jump in to the text. In chapter 4 of Revelation, we read verse 1. After this, now that's the first point, we're going to just stop there. Because as I said already, John is speaking about the things that had been, the things that the Lord had told him to write, the things that were at that time, the churches, the church ages. That's what he's saying. The Greek word again, metatao, to after these things. As we've seen already twice in this verse, the hereafter that we find there is the same as, I will show you things which must be after these things. What things? The things of the church. Literally, the church ages. It's after the time of the church. John says, I looked and behold a door. Now, there's a lot of doors that are mentioned in scripture. In fact, in the, the King James, you'll find 189 times doors are mentioned in scripture. Which, if you're interested in Bible numerics, I thought was interesting. It's 27 times 7. Let you do with that what you will. But there's two types of doors, effectively. There's the door to our lives. Revelation 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. God looking for permission to come into our lives. Genesis 4, verse 7. The very first time door is mentioned in Scripture. It's when God speaks to Cain. It says, sin lieth at the door. It's the door to our lives. It's the door to our volition, our will. The other really key group of doors that I mentioned in Scripture are ones that are entrances to God's presence and safety. Genesis six sixteen is speaking of the door to the ark, which Noah was called to go in. And God shut that door with them safely inside. In Exodus 12, verse 7, we find there the, the blood is placed on the, the lintels and doorposts of these doors. And those who were entering into those doors, into those dwelling places, through the door, would be saved, saved from the angel of death who would pass over the land of Egypt. You see, there really are, if you look in scripture, there's two doors. Really doors which speak to either what we will allow in, or the question of will we enter in. Both of them have... A huge import in terms of what we are prepared to allow or do. And this is a door that is, in a sense, optional. This door is open in heaven. John didn't have to go in. 
But how could you refuse such an opportunity? You know, it's the same for us. And I believe here we see a wonderful picture of the rapture of the church. You see, there's twice that the doors are opened in heaven. Firstly, here, this door is opened and we find John effectively caught up into heaven to see this vision. And I believe symbolically representing the church as the church are caught up at this time after the age of the church, before the tribulation begins. The next time a door is seen in heaven, we find that it's at the second coming when that door is open and Jesus returns with his bride, with the church. See, once there's a, a going up, once there's a coming back down. So this door is open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet. Now this should take you back to chapter 1 where we find that Jesus' voice is there seen as a trumpet in chapter 1 verse 10. And John hears again this voice as of a trumpet. There's real clarity to it. Talking to me which, which said, come up hither. You see, it's the same voice I think that John had already heard that's now calling him up into heaven. And again, we should see that parallel with what we read in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Because we read there, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Paul tells us that we should comfort each other with those things. It should be a great comfort as we live in this world and see all these things going on around us. To know, as Jesus said, there is a way of escaping the wrath that's coming upon this world. We should be excited. And then John says, and immediately... Let me ask you a very quick question. How quick is immediately? Well, may I suggest it's in a moment in the twinkling of an eye? Because that's how quick it's going to be when the Lord comes back with that voice of an archangel with a trump. When the dead in Christ shall rise. You see, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that in the moment of a twinkling of an eye, we will be chained. This incorruption these bodies that are decaying. They'll be transformed. And we're going to put on bodies that are fit for eternity. Bodies that are created like Jesus' resurrected body. The word in the Greek, by the way, here is atomos. First Corinthians 15.52 In the moment, the twinkling of an eye, the word is atomos. It's the smallest indivisible unit of time. Now, Physicists tell us that's 10 to the minus 17 seconds. You apparently can get down to a certain point where you can't divide time any longer. It's the smallest indivisible unit of time. And John here is told, immediately, I was in the spirit. I think it's going to be like that when the Lord comes back for us and immediately we're in his presence. John says, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. Now again I think this is interesting because despite all the wonder of heaven, and we're going to see there's these living creatures and in Paul's mind certainly inexpressible things. John says there's a throne. I mean what a great comfort to John. You see John had lived at the time where the Roman Empire was being particularly harsh and cruel towards Christians. The Jews themselves were being very antagonistic and aggressive towards the church of Jesus Christ. And John was familiar with thrones from a worldly perspective. And no doubt there was questions amongst the church of, you know, how much more of this persecution have we got to endure? You know, these worldly thrones that have been set up and 
attacking the church. But John is now drawn to another throne. A throne that is above every other throne. A throne that is the most important in all the universe. And it must have been a great comfort to John to suddenly realise or to, to have made it even clearer for him. But this throne is the throne of God himself. And God is in control. You know, it's hard for us sometimes. We go through life and we don't understand always what God is doing. Things happen that we don't fully appreciate or understand. But, you know, God is in complete control. God is still on the throne. You know, disasters occur and people say, where was God? Or a loved one dies and people question God. Or something goes wrong. People will lose a job or something happens and... Immediately people kind of start questioning why God would allow this or that or the other. As I've said before, if you just picture that scene or that situation before God has begun creating the world and God happens to call you into his presence and says, right, go away and write down a list of everything you want for your life. You know, and detail it. All the things that you like. You know, things about houses and family and, and children and job and career and all the, the material possessions that you could possibly want or think of. Write everything down that you want for your life. And you go away and for a week you spend all this time writing it out and you come back to God with your long list of this is what I want my life to look like. And then God says, okay, put it on the table. You put it down and then God lays next to it another plan. And he says, that's my plan for your life. Choose one. What would you choose? You see, we instinctively know that we have to go for God's plan. Why? Because God is good and does good. We're told in Psalm 119 verse 68, God cannot do anything that's not good. God's very nature is goodness. And so God's plan for us will always be the best. And it may be that we go through trials. We may go through difficulties. But ultimately, God's plan is perfect. And what we need to do, to do is to learn to walk by faith in the plan that he has for us. You see, again, all the distractions of this life are gone. As John gets to heaven, as he looks, he sees this throne. It's just now all about Jesus. You know, in this world, there's always something else competing for our time. You know, we sit down to pray and something happens. The phone rings or somebody calls us or, you know, there's a noise outside or something. You know, we want to sit and read our Bible and then 101 things all happen at once. But when we get to heaven, there won't be any of those distractions. It will be just Jesus. Everything else is gone. Charles Dake, in his commentary, says this, The first thing John saw in heaven was the throne of God. It is, it is literal as much as the door is literal. The same things that prove the one is literal will prove the other is literal. Some cannot conceive of God sitting on a real throne. But there is no such thing as a spiritual throne. We have no ground at all for making these scenes symbolic or unreal. And not as they were actually seen by John. Our misconception of things cannot disprove their existence. If God could create literal throne, thrones, heavens, planets, etc., it seems he should be able to sit on, or in any of them, he desires. Again, this isn't just some dream that John's having. John is seeing things that we ourselves will see with our own eyes. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. 
Now, the jasper, Matthew Henry says, is a transparent stone, which yet offers to the eye a variety of the most vivid colors, signifying the glorious perfections of God. The sardine stone is red, signifying the justice of God. Now, these are interesting because we find that these two stones, the jasper stone was the last stone that was in the high priest's breastplate. If you're familiar uh, with the Jewish high priest, they had this breastplate that God had told Moses to make. And they were to put these gemstones, these 12 gemstones, one for representative each of the tribes of Israel. Well, this particular one, the jasper, represented the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin, by the way, his name means the son of my right hand. In fact, actually, if you remember, when Benjamin was born, he was originally named Ben-Omi, son of my sorrow. But Jacob renames him son of my right hand. What a wonderful description of Jesus. Because Jesus was a man acquainted with grief. He knew our sorrows. But also, he's been elevated and raised to the highest place to sit at the right hand of the Father. The sardine stone was the first stone in the high priest's breastplate. And it represented the tribe of Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn. Well, how applicable there also. Because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. So here, even with these two stones, they speak of Jesus, the first and the last. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father and was the firstborn from the dead. What a wonderful testimony. As we... Get one day to stand before this throne and we'll look at Jesus and we see these stones. And by the way, take note of these things because I don't want you getting to heaven going, oh, what's all this about? You're going to stand with another church group if you do that. If you know, part of Calvary Chapel, know these things, learn it. Because when we get there, we want to be excited and understand the, the meaning of these things and, and see the wonder in what God's designed here. The other thing that John sees is a rainbow round about the throne. Now this seems to be encircling the entire throne. Seemingly above it, different commentators have got various ideas, but we're told it's like unto an emerald. Now, typically, we speak of something that is brilliant green in colour. Now, the rainbow we're familiar, of course, from the book of Genesis was the, the sign or the reminder of the covenant that God had established between himself and man, that he wouldn't bring judgment again. Seemingly here, it's an eternal reminder of God's covenant to redeem a special people for himself. See, a covenant that wasn't just in the, the sky, wasn't just something that was a promise that there wouldn't be any more rain, or rain to, to flood the world. But this is a promise that God has redeemed people for himself, because of what Christ accomplished. We're told in Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10, a really important couple of verses, that God's wisdom is made clear by the existence of the church. God's plan of redemption you see, in fact, God makes the point there, through what Paul has written, that God's wisdom is seen because of the church. You know, you can think for the angels before the world began, as they start to see God creating everything. And of course, Lucifer's thinking, this is great, I'm going to have all of this for myself. And then suddenly God creates man in his own image. Satan hates that. That's what leads to the fall. But then, the angels looking on and seeing God start to unveil his plan. And we get to, of course, Cain and Abel, and everything seems to go wrong. And you can almost imagine the angels looking on, thinking, well, what's God going to do now? But all through the ages, as God establishes this seed, this line that comes down to Mary. 
who then gives birth to Jesus. And even then the angels are thinking, I don't get it. Why, why would God go to these people, become so helpless, so weak, to be born in amongst them? And then ultimately to die on the cross. You know, what did the angels think as they're looking at are those things going on from a distance? But then we see the church. God establishes the church, the church of Jesus Christ, to be Christ's eternal companion. And suddenly it's as if the angels and the principalities go, oh, now I get it. Now I see what God was doing. He was redeeming a people for himself. It seems that this green rainbow is just a reminder of that wonderful plan of covenant that God had through the ages. And then we're told round about the throne with four and twenty seats, literally thrones themselves. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now the big question is, who are these elders? And it's a really important question for a number of reasons, some of which we'll address next week. But your options are quite simply this. They're either angels, it could be reference to Israel, could possibly be reference to the church, as we'll explore, or an otherwise unidentified group. The last one seems unlikely. In all cases, they seem to be representative. And there's a number of good reasons for that. We find in First Chronicles 24, chapter 24 and chapter 25, that David there separated the priesthood into 24 courses. And each course was representative of the whole. There was also 24 courses of musicians, again, representative of the whole. There's a quite easy rebuttal to the suggestion that there were angels, because we find... Later on, the angels are identified as a different group. That these elders are not angelic beings. These angels are, sorry, the, the elders are not angelic beings. Because the elders fall down and worship God. And the angels are there seen as a distinct group from it. Revelation 7.11 says this, it says, And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders, and about the four beasts. Well, if all the angels are standing round about the throne, and about the elders, then the angels can't themselves be elders. So that deals with that one quite simply. They can't represent, this group can't represent Israel, because throughout the tribulation, we find that Israel are seen very clearly on earth. And this is an event that's taking place in heaven. There's a number of verses that make that very, very clear. During the tribulation time and various prophecies in Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel and so on, or have the references in the notes for you to, to go over if you want to. So, the only real tangible option that we have is that this group is representative of the church. Well, let's look at what we do know. The church, compared to the elders, we see this, that the church are promised white garments. Now, if you remember, we saw that in the uh, chapter 3, uh, that we were promised white garments to wear as one of the, the rewards for those who are overcomers. So that's one of the things that are promised to the church. We find also, that of course, as we just noticed a moment ago, that the elders themselves are also clothed in these white garments. The church are promised crowns, and we'll look at that in detail in a moment. Well, the elders, we find are wearing these crowns. 
The church, we're told, and we know clearly, are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. In chapter 5, we're told that the 24 elders are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We know that the church come from every kindred and tribe and, and nation. Well, we're told in chapter 5, that's true of the elders, that they have come from every kindred, tribe and nation. The church, we're told, and Paul makes this clear for us, are to be kings and priests to God. Peter says the same thing, that we're a royal priesthood. The elders, we're told, are kings and priests to God. The church, we know, are given this promise of reigning on the earth. It's a promise that Jesus makes, it's something that Paul also alludes to on a couple of occasions. The elders, we find, are destined to reign on the earth. We find that the church is hidden in the Old Testament. The book of Ephesians makes that clear. Jesus himself alludes to that in Matthew 13. But those things that were, were hidden are now to be revealed. And what, of course, we find is that the church was concealed in the Old Testament. God's plan. We find, though, that with the elders... They're hidden in the Old Testament. You know, we've got a couple of visions of the throne of heaven. And we look in Isaiah, and we look in Ezekiel, and we find there that we have cherubim and seraphim and all sorts of angelic creatures in Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, for the two places to go and look. But you won't find mention of 24 elders. Everything else seems to be in place. The throne is there, and his angelic beings are there, and everything else... But there's no mention of 24 elders. So both the church are concealed in the Old Testament and the 24 elders are concealed in the Old Testament. The church are promised thrones to sit upon. Jesus spoke of those who would overcome, sitting down with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Well, the 24 elders we see here are sitting on thrones. The the Greek word here, that's translated seats, is thronos, no guessing what that word means. It means thrones. The elders in the church are representative of the body. The elders are there to represent the body, to look after the spiritual care of the body. And as we've already noted, the elders here in this passage seemingly are representative of a group. And that's made very, very clear because we're told they come from all tribes and nations and tongues. Well, there's more than 24 tribes, nations, and tongues. So it's very clear that these 24 are representative of a larger number. And finally, the term elder is never applied to any other created being except man. It's never applied to any angelic being. So it seems pretty conclusive, I think you'll agree, that this group of elders, these 24 elders, are representative of the church. And we see them at this point in heaven. And it all starts to make sense as you start to go forward. Let's just carry on. Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of burning fire before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now lightning and thunder usually precede a storm. You start to see lightning in the distance. You see see the thunder. You know a storm is coming. Well, more than ever, a storm is coming. The time of tribulation is at hand at this point. The seven lamps we've already met in chapter one, uh, we've also seen chapter three identified as being the seven or complete spirits of God. In, in the tabernacle of Moses, we find a seven branch lampstand, a menorah, a symbolic of the real thing that I think that John is now looking upon in heaven. And before the throne was a sea of glass like unto crystal. 
This sea of glass seems to be the laver that Moses was told to, to make. Now the laver in the tabernacle furniture was basically a big bath. It was a bath in which the priests were to, to wash and to cleanse themselves. Seemingly now in heaven, the real thing, the sea of glass is there. And it also seems to be, and a number of commentaries will, will take you down this road, it seems to be representative or symbolically speaking of the word of God upon which we stand. And the labor and the word, again, symbolic, because the, the labor was used for physical cleansing. Well, the word we know is there to cleanse us spiritually. We're to be washed with the water of the word. So before the throne, the sea of glass, like unto crystal. Can you imagine what this is going to be like? All the things we've just noted, and then you're looking at this sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne, we're told, are four beasts. As if everything already is not enough, we then have these four living creatures, full of eyes before and behind. And again, you can go to Ezekiel if you want a, a more detailed description of these beings. Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10, in good places. Literally, the, the wording is living ones. It says living beasts. Sometimes that conjures up something that's a bit frightening or scary. But no doubt we'll be in awe of these things, but not frightened. Full of eyes behind and before. And the first beast, we're told, was like a lion. The second beast, like a calf. The third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. Now, this is very interesting. Isaiah refers to these creatures as seraphims. Ezekiel seems to speak, to, speak of them as cherubim. Now, whether there's two distinct types here, not completely sure. There may well be two slightly different variants of these beings that are in heaven. We'll know when we get there, we'll see. But we do know that they seem to have these four faces, as just alluded to here. Now what's interesting, we see this throughout Scripture. Now if you cast your mind back to the Old Testament, Moses is given the plan for the tabernacle, they set up the tabernacle, and then when the children of Israel are journeying in the wilderness, they camp around the tabernacle. Now those that camped right next to it were the Levites. They would camp right next to the tabernacle, around the tabernacle itself. Now, if we look according to each side of the tabernacle, the tribes of Israel were to camp. Now the Jew, tribe of Judah would typically camp on one side, so that would be on the uh, east side of the tabernacle. We're told there's 186,400 of them. Now, if they're to observe the rabbinical requirements, the, the law that God is giving them, they couldn't camp southeast in this area here because they were to camp on the east side. That meant only as wide as the, the priests and the, the Levites camped, then they could then camp. And they'd have to literally go out as far as necessary, in a, in a sense, in a, a block moving out from the tabernacle itself. So, again, the camp of Judah on the east of the Levites, the camp of Reuben will be on the south. So they wouldn't be able to camp southeast or any of those other places, only in those cardinal directions. So their length would be proportional to their population. And so looking at that, we see, and each, each uh, standard uh, was headed up by one of the tribes. So that Judah would have two other tribes associated with them. Reuben, again, would have two other tribes associated with them. And they would camp on the sides. Reuben, there was 151,450 in that group. And then the tribe of Ephraim, that would be on the, the west side, moving out from the tabernacle. Uh, we find there's 108,100 of those. And then the tribe of Dan, again, uh, we find that there's 157,600. Now, if you notice, these numbers are actually 
almost identical. Only, only a few thousand difference between them. Obviously, the tribe of Judah, this, this camp down here is a lot larger, and the tribe of Ephraim, much smaller. Why am I telling you all of that? Well, because when you put it together, when the children of Israel were camped in the wilderness, and remember what God said in Exodus 25, verse 8, he says that he would dwell among them. If we were to look at the camp of Israel spread out on the ground as they camped at Mount Sinai, or every time they set up the tabernacle, this is what you would see. That's what Balaam would have seen. That's what Balak would have seen as they looked down upon the camp of Israel. Forms the shape of a cross. Is that just coincidence? No, I don't think so. You see, the tribes also had a particular standard as well. You know, you're familiar with the, the Romans would march, they'd have their standard, their banners and so on. Well, Judah had theirs and it was a sign of a lion. They'd have a banner with a lion on it. Reuben, an ox. Ephraim, a man, and then Dan, an eagle. All of those speak of Jesus Christ. You see, there's so many parallels that we see through this. We'll, we'll talk more in a moment. Judah means praise. Ephraim means fruitful. Reuben means affliction. Dan means judge. Don't all of those apply to Jesus as well? My point is that these living creatures that we're looking at in heaven are there giving glory and testimony to Jesus Christ. Now, this is incredible because when we look at the Gospels, we find a fourfold presentation of Jesus. Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah, the King. Mark, in fact, Matthew presents Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark presents Jesus as an ox, if you like, a servant. Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man. John presents Jesus, if you like, as an eagle, as the Son of God. Now, we could go through each of these things in detail, but it's incredible as you start to look at the design of the Gospels and all of these things, how every one of them is representative of these creatures and ultimately they are speaking of Jesus. I'll let you look into that further if you want to. Let's move on. So the four beasts had each of them six wings about him and they were full of eyes within and they rest not day and night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. You know, some people complain when we go over choruses a number of times. Well, these beasts don't rest. Day and night, they just sing the same thing. But you know, I have the feeling that they never get tired of it. I don't think they ever get to the point where they're bored and they think, can we sing something else now? Because they're in the presence of the God who is holy. Why holy, holy, holy? Because they're worshipping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The one which was and is and is to come. And we told him, when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who lives forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne uh, and worship him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, and before we look at what they're going to say to close out the chapter, I just want to quickly take you through these crowns. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 to 15 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the beamer seat, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according that he has done, whether it be good or bad. This is very simple. This is about good or bad. This is not about salvation. We're going to be judged according to our works and rewarded accordingly. There's nothing to do with salvation. That is a free gift. It's been done for us. Christ has given us that. And what we have to do is believe in Jesus Christ, that he's paid for our sin at Calvary. 
which is the various judgments in scripture. The Bema seat here seems to be the first one chronologically that will occur as the church are brought before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ. But really, in essence, it's an award ceremony. That's the best way of describing it. There's going to be at the end of time, at the end of the days, the great white throne judgment. That is what most people, when they talk about judgment day, that's really the, the one. But there's also going to be the judgment of the nations and the judgment of the great whore, this false religious system. But again, Peter makes it clear, First Peter 4.17, judgment is to begin with the house of God. Another scripture that alludes to the fact that all of this timing sequence will begin with the rapture of the church, the church being taken up before the throne and these events that we're looking at right now. Again, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 11 tells us, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Jumping to verse 14, we read this, For the love of Christ constrains us. I love this. You know, we have grace, we have liberty. As a believer, you are free to go and do whatever you want. But, Paul says, don't let this liberty become a license for sin. You see, we've got absolute freedom, and yet we're constrained. We're constrained by love. It's because we love him, because of what he's done. It's just because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which should live not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. It's very clear that our motivation... It's quite simply what Christ has done. That's the reason we live lives in obedience to God, in faithfulness to him. So as again, this event will be in this an award ceremony. Sin isn't part of the equation. But how we've lived as Christians, and 1 Corinthians chapter 3 really is your key verse uh, passage on this. It speaks of that time of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay and straw, all being assessed, all being judged. Those which are fleshly or worldly just get burnt up. Those which are spiritual will endure. And by the way, Scripture makes it clear that there is a possibility of forfeiting your rewards. 2 John verse 8, we were looking at this recently in our Bible study. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Well, John says you could lose the things that you've worked for. Paul speaks about not being a, a castaway. After preaching to others. He says, I, I, I therefore so run. Bringing his own body into subjection. Really the idea of that word being cast away. Some people think that Paul is suggesting that he could lose his salvation. That's not what he's saying. It's really speaking of that he could have nothing. If he didn't look after his own spiritual life, all the good he'd done in preaching to others would mean nothing. So... Through scripture we find that there's a number of crowns that are promised to believers. There's the crown of incorruption in 1 Corinthians 9. The crown of life in James 1.12. The crown of rejoicing, 1 Thessalonians 2.19 and 20. The crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, 1-4. And then the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8. Those are the, the crowns that are mentioned just very, very quickly just to take you through them. 1 Corinthians 9 it just speaks of running the race to win. Now, in Corinth, they used to have the uh, Isthmus Games. Uh, this was, again, they were given this laurel wreath crown. Now, Paul makes the point, he says, that every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now, they do it, the world does things, and they just get a temporary crown, a laurel wreath crown that will fade away. But our crown is incorruptible. 
That's worth striving for. The crown of life in, in James, we're told, is promised here. It says, blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he's tried, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us that there is no temptation that has overtaken us. That is not common. You know, you don't go through anything that other believers haven't gone through, but God's grace is always sufficient. The key, of course, again, is that we love him. Now, if you love him, you won't be pulled away by the things of the world. The crown of rejoicing is a lovely one because it speaks of our joy when I believe at the time of the rapture we look around and we see others in the presence of Jesus and his coming that have come to know the Lord. Maybe through a conversation we had where we thought they weren't listening. Or when we've witnessed to somebody. Where we've shared our testimony or just spoken of Jesus. And I believe the Lord will allow us just to see how many lives have been influenced and touched by our faithfulness. Paul says, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. It's the joy of seeing the lost found. Luke 15.7 speaks of the joy that you'll be in heaven over just one sinner that repents. The crown of glory, we're told, the elders which are among you I exalt, says Peter, 1 Peter 5. Who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. Quite simply, this is speaking of faithfulness in ministry. And then finally, the crown of righteousness. I love this. This is so dramatic in a sense when you think through the implication here. It says, Paul says to Timothy, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Why given to those that love his appearing? Well, it's because those that are ready, those that are looking for the return of Jesus. As I said before, you know, when I was younger and mum and dad, when I was kind of in my you know, mid to late teens and my elder sister Katie was at home, mum and dad occasionally went away and we knew that, that they were coming back on a certain point and so we made sure the house was ready. We got things tidy. Well, Jesus is coming back and we need to get our lives tidy. And if we are living our lives in anticipation for his return, then we're going to be living righteous lives. We're not going to be having things in our our lives, our houses, our homes that are not glorifying to God. You know, there's a an old kind of adage speaking of, you know, if Christ came to your house today, you know, what would you have to put away? What would you have to do differently? Well, Christ is coming very soon. And so those that are getting ready are going to be living righteous lives. And that's why this crown is promised to them. Now, what are we to do with these crowns? Do we spend eternity bragging about how many we've got? Well, there's certainly five that we could find mentioned in Scripture. There may be others that, that we could find alluded to. There's certainly those five. Now, is it that somebody's going to get four and go, <laughs> i got four, he only got two. No, it's not going to be that at all, because we're going to get before the throne, as we've seen. We cast our crowns before Jesus. This is a beautiful thing, because we have the opportunity of giving something back as a love gift, to say thank you. 
First Chronicles 29, David made this point, Riches and honor come of thee, and you reign over all in your hand. There's power and might, and thy hand is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and give praise, and praise thy glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able to offer so willingly after this thought, all things have come from thee. Where do those crowns come from in the first place? They came from the Lord. And of thy own have we given thee. See, we're only giving back to Jesus what he's already wrought and done in our lives through the working of the Holy Spirit. So we cast these crowns before the throne. What happens to those crowns? Well, ultimately, we look in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, and we see again heaven opened. And this white horse comes out with him that sat upon it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he does judge and make war. His eyes were a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. Many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew but himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. You see, this is a wonderful thing that we have the opportunity by living godly lives in lives of obedience to earn these rewards that we get given at this time. But then we get to give those things to Jesus. It's the only thing I can see in scripture that we can actually give to Jesus as a thank you, as a love gift. It's like, imagine turning up at a party. Everybody in front of you in the line to go in has brought a gift or a present and, and you haven't. How would you feel? You know, if we use our lives to sow to the things of the flesh, the things of this world, if our hobbies are all centered around worldly things, how will we feel? When these crowns are being given out. And again, it's not about where we stand in relation to our fellow men. It's about, will you have something to lay before Jesus' feet? With tears in your eyes to say, thank you, Jesus. Just to tell him how much you love him. You see, Jesus will receive and wear the crowns that we give him. What's the significance? Well, however great our reward, Jesus receives all the glory. We're not going to be able to brag about anything. Of course, you've got nothing that we can brag about. Once the crowns are cast down, we are all the same. We're just sinners saved by grace. It's our one opportunity to give something back. And that, you know, is today. It's as we go through this coming week, if the Lord tarries, that we have opportunity to love him and serve him by the way that we live our lives, by overcoming temptation, by all of these things. You know, they're representative of every time you wanted to quit the race, but didn't. Representative of every time you faced temptation but didn't give in because you loved him more. Representative of every time you've had the opportunity to talk somewhat to someone about Christ and you didn't shy away. And Spurgeon made this comment, he said, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself, be sure of that. These crowns are representative of your faithfulness in ministry, the things that the Lord has called you to. And representative of your eagerly Looking for his return. Again. Crown of incorruption. A disciplined Christian life. No compromise. Running the race. The crown of life. Overcoming temptation. The crown of rejoicing. It's winning souls for Christ. The crown of glory. Being faithful in ministry. And the crown of righteousness. Again. It's looking for his coming. Ultimately. Sanctified. Being set apart from the things of this world. So we lay our crowns before the throne, and this is what we say. This is we're going to learn this. I'm not sure what the tune's going to be, but this is we're going to sing this. We're going to declare it for everything we're worth when we're standing there before the throne. We're going to say, "Thou art worthy, O Lord, 
to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. What a statement that is. You know, it's interesting that you know so much, sadly, of the church today deny that Jesus is the creator. They deny that God is creator. They try to attribute our being here to time and chance and random processes. I mean, it's nonsense. I mean, there is, as we've said so many times, no scientific basis for evolution. It doesn't stand up as a scientific theory at all. Just forget religion, forget Christianity. Just evolution on its own doesn't stack up. And yet so many Christians and churches and ministers and the Pope and many others have come out and made their comments about accepting Darwinian evolution. Well, there won't be any of that before the throne. We'll be worshipping and praising a creator who created all things for his own pleasure. But you know, even in that, God has created things for our pleasure too. Because when God created all the wonderful array of fruits and everything else that we see in the Garden of Eden, God wasn't creating those things because he was going to enjoy them. He was creating them because we were to enjoy them. And it gave God pleasure that we could enjoy those things. You know what it's like, those of you who have children. When you give a gift to your child and you see the smile on their face, it's priceless. Well, that's what God has, has done with us. He's given us so many wonderful blessings in this life. And he's done those things that we will be blessed, but ultimately he's taken pleasure in those things. You see, he's created all things. It's for his pleasure that they are and were created. And he is worthy to receive all glory, honor, and power. We'll pick it up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we just thank you for this privilege to be able to sit at your feet, to, Lord, learn from your word of these things that are shortly to come to pass. And, Father, I pray you do stir each of us this morning, that we would be more hungry to live lives that are glorifying and honoring to you, that we would live our lives, Lord, to so to that which is spiritual, not that which is of this world, that, Lord, we would seek to try and earn as many crowns as we can by living godly, holy lives, empowered by your Holy Spirit, walking by faith through grace, knowing that we will have this opportunity to lay our crowns before you and to worship you. Jesus, we just thank you. Lord, impress these things upon our heart, I pray. And Lord, get us ready for your return. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.